Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today we're going to be discussing a subject matter that we all need to be aware about, um, organ donation policies around the world. And as we all know, a limited supply of organ organs continue to hinder transplantation around the world. And the real interesting fact about that is transplantation works. So a lot of people are seeking that treatment option. And for myself, I've had four transplants. And, you know, one of the questions that always comes up to me is like, how did you get four? And I always respond that I'd lived long enough to get four transplants. And and my early transplants that I received as a child weren't always, you you were really, um, the, the success rate wasn't all that great. So I've seen the evolution of transplantation. And I'm very excited today to talk to Tom Moan. He is the CEO of One Legacy. And that is the U.S. largest organ recovery agency, serving 19 million people, and it's near mostly in Southern California. And it covers 215 hospitals and 11 transplant centers. So, welcome to the show, Tom. My pleasure to be here, Lori. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about you know uh, the history of how you know if you can explain the OPOs and how uh, transplantation, you know, got started through the OPOs. You know, if you go back to the earliest days of transplantation in the really the early to mid-1960s, individual transplant surgeons and individual transplant centers would contact local hospitals in their area to ask to be alerted if there is a potential donor in the hospital, someone who was on a ventilator with a major neurologic injury, who might um, not uh, is not anticipated to survive, and to be notified ra- rapidly. And in the early days, those individual one-off relationships between the transplant program uh, and the hospital, the surgeon oftentimes would go out and actually work with the family one-on-one um, to talk about the opportunity to make something good come out of their loss through donation and this, at the time, very new uh, treatment of transplantation. Well, and I think that was in the seventies, right? In the seventies, yeah, the earliest, but the earliest ones were in the sixties because the uh, at some point transplant surgeons got too busy and didn't have the time to make all those relationships and had to, and there were more than one center in an area. And at certain points, they were somewhat um, uh, stepping on each other's toes. Let's say between oh, the relationships okay. of the hospitals. So in nineteen sixty eight, two OPOs were formed. The first one, New England Organ Bank in Boston. And the second one was right here in Los Angeles, the uh, UCLA called Regional Organ Procurement Agency. So those were the first two organ procurement organizations formally defined in the country. Now, we went on to have like 130, if I remember correctly, a good number. And they, that's in large part because they still grew out of a collection of a small number of transplant centers in a given region. In fact, Los Angeles had two up until the year 1999 um, that were sort of overlapping territories. Through the years... The OPOs um, sort of uh, voluntarily merged, and then in 1984 with the National Organ Transplant Act, the federal government said, okay, we really don't want to have this competitive um, uh, organ recovery uh, happening within different communities because it is not good for families, it's not good for the community to have sort of a competition over this, but we ought to manage this better. 
and they designated OPOs for given regions of the country. And over time, those have winnowed down to now there are 58. And in fact, the, the last ones involuntarily closed was ROPA in Los Angeles, and it was rolled, rolled into what was then called Southern California Oregon Procurement Center. And we um, named that once they came together as one legacy. So these different organ procurement agencies across the country basically have a geographical area that they, you know, basically help people get transplants. And can you explain a little bit about how many people have are waiting for transplants and how many people benefit from deceased donors or living donors? Sure. There are um, right now 120,000 people waiting nationwide for transplant. Um, about 100,000 of those are waiting for kidneys. Um, as I know you know, Lori, that's for the very good reason that we have the relatively successful treatment of dialysis for kidney disease. And we don't really have that many successful treatments that would uh, allow patients with uh, liver disease and lung and heart disease to survive long enough for a transplant. So the list is predominantly uh, kidneys. Um, and as I say, 120,000 people waiting today. Last year, there were over 30,000 uh, deceased donor transplants. From, uh, from deceased donors and uh, almost 6,000 from living donors. Uh, so uh, we've seen a tremendous increase in deceased donation in the last couple of years, nationwide up about 12% in the last two years. Uh, but uh, living donation has stayed relatively flat and fallen off slightly, probably because people are getting uh, deceased donor uh, kidneys and, and don't need to inconvenience friends and relatives as much. Well, and it's amazing 30,000 transplants. And so, um, when I go out to dinner and I talk to friends, they always like to, you know, pull out their little pink dot uh, on their driver's license. And they say, oh, I'm an organ donor, see? And can you explain a little bit about that? Because it's not always the case if you just have a pink dot. In, in California, for many years, we had, had the pink dot on the license. And you'd get your license and you would stick it on the license. And inevitably, in the four or five years you had your license, it would fall off. Um, but that falling, it was sort of symbolic of the fact that there was no actual registry in the state. It simply was a pink dot and you hopefully had a donor card. But even then, we in the organ procurement world never saw that card because it was usually in your wallet, which was probably already home with family or in the hospital safe. So in 2006, we established the Donate Life California Registry. Uh, that So when you check the box of the DMV, I want to be a donor, uh, it goes in the registry and the registry is informed. And when we, we uh, the four organ procurement organizations in the state can look it up to see if someone's a registered donor. And okay. that has dramatically transformed how we do our work. And that's just in California? It's not, it's... No, every state has, every state has a registry now. There's uh, 50, actually 51 registries around the country because I think Puerto Rico is the 51. And um, each one has a different emblem. Some have hearts on their license. Others have other symbols. Some have the green ribbons. Uh, but the pink dot is a uniquely California thing. But each state has a registry. And probably most important thing that not everyone knows is that if you are a registered donor, it is your legally binding uh, decision to donate, and it, and it cannot be legally overturned by, uh, by family or next of kin. Well, and one of the things that I find interesting about that is we have an opting-in system in the United States, and that's basically you make a decision and you opt in to be a donor. And I find it really interesting because not all um, all of the other countries have that policy. Can you explain a little bit about the opting-in policy if I didn't adequately explain it? And, uh, you know, some of the other countries that have gone a little bit further. Well, um, yeah, the opt opting-in is the system that we use in this country and in 
probably 80, 70, 80% of the countries in the world use opt-in. And opt-in based essentially says that you have the right to choose how you want to, uh, what you want to do with your body and your organs at the time of your death. Um, and you can exercise that right in one of two ways. Either you exercise it by being a registered donor or putting it on an advanced directive and signing that. And as I say, that's your legally binding choice of what you want to do. If you don't do that, and for instance, at the DMV, you check, if you don't check, I want to be a donor, the other box you have to check is not at this time. And that allows legally your family to decide. Whoever is your, um, essentially the executor of your medical decisions at that point in time. And so it's, it's about voluntary choice to donate. Mm-hmm. The countries with uh, opt-out laws, otherwise known as presumed consent, are mostly in Europe. Uh, there are about 17, there are 17 European countries with opt-out laws. Spain being having the largest uh, donation rate, France, um, Belgium, Denmark, um, Austria, for instance. Interestingly enough, um, in just uh, in just nominal comparisons of donation rates um, between the countries, only Spain has a higher overall donation rate of the large developed countries uh, than the U.S. does. And if we adjust the donation rate, the, the world measures it at donors per million population. If you adjust it for the relative death rate in the community, in the country, which says this is the, the number of potential donors. If you, there are countries with death rates, like Germany's death rate is 10 per thousand. The U.S. is about 8 per thousand. So we have about 20% fewer donor potential. So you can't just use donors per million. All that said, if you adjust um, death rates between the opt-out, presumed consent countries, and compare them to the U.S., we actually, the U.S. is um, is the leading country in the world for donation, and parts of the U.S., like California, are ahead of um, ahead of Spain uh, in their donation rate and in the transplant rate. And, and what do you think that is? Is it do we text and drive more? I mean, what, what can be the reason? <laughs> no, yeah, it's not our it's not our uh, death rate. It's the fact that in in those opt out countries, they don't actually follow it. They ask family every time, and they go by the family's decision. So it is what they have one thing in their law, but they have another thing in their practice. Oh, because, you know, I remember that I met somebody from another country, and they're like, yeah, we have presumed consent, and of course, just like you explained, but then we have pure presumed consent. And I don't know if that's still a reality, that if you decide not to be an organ donor and you need an organ, you go to the bottom of the list. Is that is that a a, a rumor? Yeah, no, no country really does that. The only country that has something like that is um, Israel, six years ago, instituted a system whereby if someone is um, waitlisted for an organ and has been a registered donor for three years, they get more points, so they move up the list. Okay. But nobody gets bumped down to the bottom. They're using and the carrot the instead of the stick. that's the only country that has anything like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And they had an initial bump up in the registration rate in the first two or three years. It, it's held, but it hasn't continued to grow. And their overall donation rate still lags out in the U.S.'s. Well, a few years ago, One Legacy uh, showcased a film with Isabel and Anna Stenzel about they needed a double lung transplant because of cystic fibrosis. And they really explained Japan's policy on organ donation. And can you touch upon, you know, the way people die and how people view that? It's a little gruesome, but I think, you know, people need to understand that not everybody is an organ donor when they die. Yeah, yeah the... Uh the interesting thing is, medically speaking, the likelihood of any one of us actually being able to be a, an organ donor at the time of our death 
is less than 1%. And wow. that, because you have to be brain dead and on a ventilator. Um, if you're on a ventilator, you have to be on a ventilator to keep your organs perfused with blood and oxygen and nutrition. Otherwise, within 25, 30 minutes, they would not be functional or viable for transplant. Uh, so if someone, unfortunately, dies in an automobile accident and dies out on the highway, their ability to be an organ donor is almost zero um, the, uh, because there's no perfusion to their, to their organs. That's, um, and in Japan, they had a challenge for many, many years that they did not recognize brain death except in the case where somebody was a registered donor and had already, um, prior to their death, um, signed a donor card that they were a registered donor, which was a very small number because they have cultural challenges uh, in Japanese traditional culture with issues of death and, and the, how the body is treated at death. Um, that, that law was changed. In fact, a number of us from around the world worked with Japan to get that law changed, and now families can choose to donate for an, for a loved one who did not register um, or have a donor card, but uh, and and then they would be tested for brain death. But they have a long way to go. And Japan is Japan's donation rate still is about one and a half donors per million population, and if you the U.S. is running somewhere uh, in the if your death rate normalize it in the high thirties, um, close to forty. Per population, or per million population. So you can see Japan has a long way to go because they have a cultural challenge, a traditional challenge, and they had for many years, and they still have a bit of a legal challenge in declaring brain death. Well, yeah, because it, it was I it was fascinated that they believe in heart death, and and you know basically as you mentioned earlier, all the organs you know don't work if if they don't have if they're not perfused. Um, I want to touch a little bit on China, <laughs> and. Um, is there any progress being made? Because we always hear these stories of prisoners being used in, in, um, for organ donation, and it's just such a horrific thing to think about. But can you touch upon that a little bit? Sure. Um, I've, I've been to China uh, a couple times in, in, in Hong Kong, China, and Taiwan, um, working in organ donation education and training and, and addressing some of these issues and making sure, and, and ethics. And I can say... Fortunately, that the tremendous work that's been done in the past 10 years with the Declaration of Istanbul to, um, that uh, promotes the voluntary donation of organs and opposes uh, the use of prisoner organs and organs against people's will um, it has, has made tremendous progress. And China has developed a very good referral system and donor tracking system and the like, and in the beginning, rudimentary education system around the country. And at this point, the, you know, some of the news is a little hard to get all the details on, but there is a sense that about 80 to 90% of the use of prisoner organs or uh, involuntary use of organs is probably been reined in. Uh, there, there seem to be one or two transplant centers that continue to do this that are affiliated with the Chinese People's Liberation Army, which is the largest hospital system in the country. So it's not just for army, but that's who runs it. And they have a lot of autonomy. But there's a lot of progress being made. And in particular, the world transplant community has made it a point to say any institution 
that has um, evidence of organ trafficking or illegal use of recovering organs from prisoners and the like and involuntary use of organs uh, cannot publish in the major journals and cannot participate in the major conferences. And that's been remarkably powerful uh, to get people to rein in their programs and meet modern standards. Well, you know, that's really fascinating because you always see these explosive stories and you, you don't know what's always real. And, you know, when you see it on the Internet, it must be true, right? But it's good to hear because of the fact that, you know, these stories catch on throughout the Internet like wildfire. And it, it, it scares people. I mean, it's scare. you know, it's it's and, and also- I do think the, the some of the folks who brought it to our attention years ago, um, uh, David Matus uh, has done a lot of work in this area, um, and the the Falun Gong group, a, uh, which was originally a not a, an apolitical sort of health oriented group that was originally favored by the Chinese government, but went fell out of favor, and has claimed a lot of their practitioners have been made prisoners and been made donors. They brought it to our attention around the world, and I think it did a good service by that. I think there may be a question as to whether they're. Um, not recognizing the tremendous progress that's been made and helping to keep it moving forward. So there's probably, at this point, there's probably more noise than reality, more, more smoke than fire. <laughs> but we can't, we can't, we can't afford to just pay no attention. We have to keep working at it. Well, and you know, when you talk about the fake news, I mean, I, I see this. Um, story circulate a lot where I, you know, ended up in Vegas within a bathtub full of ice. And um, can you just specify that that's not possible to wake up in a tub of ice? <laughs> yeah. yeah, none of none of these stories have ever, ever, ever been found to be true. And the the main reason is there's not a transplant surgeon in this country that I, in most of the world that I can even think of, who would try to transplant an organ that that was recovered in such a circumstance never and beyond the ethical issues there's all the medical issues of trying to do a, a procedure like that and uh, and make it viable um, no it's never happened um, and I could never imagine it happening in this country. I, I know it's not. You don't wake up in a tub of ice. I mean, you no, know. No, I mean, no, so no, I mean, no, this is like. So I'm like, you know, the argument from the start is 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 um, not very convincing or plausible. Yeah. Uh, let's just move on to incentives. So. Can you explain a little bit? A lot of people are saying, well, um, in the U.S., it's a felony to receive any money for a kidney. Like, you know, you can't offer somebody on the Internet like, hey, if you want to donate a kidney, I'll pay you X. It's a felony. But can you talk a little bit about incentives and how they may help or hinder the um, U.S. transplant community? There's, you know, there's always an interest in finding ways to stimulate people to choose to donate. Um, and there are a number of sort of free market economists who are, you know, true believers in the nature of the free market to stimulate people's behaviors. And there's no doubt there's truth to that, um, who have advocated for this through in recent years. The, um, in conversations and in debates I've had with a number of them, when we've talked about deceased donation, and they learned that right now, 76% of people who can donate at the time of death do don't actually donate and save lives. That you're now, we have, we have, as you say, to use an, a metaphor, we've plucked the low-hanging fruit here. People who, who are very comfortable with donation or even partially comfortable donate. And now we're dealing with this small group of people that have some very deep 
feelings or misinformation, that's a very hard group to get to. And do we want to try to essentially bribe them against their beliefs? Uh, and will that even be successful? I think there's a lot of question whether that would even work. And probably more importantly, if we did do that, would we create a situation where those who don't need the money would choose not to donate uh, because they figure someone else will do it for them, and we don't have someone else to do it. Oh, that's an interesting point. The, uh, now, the, the, um, the issue on, on living donation um, it, it remains a very hot topic around the world and around the country. Uh, the notion that, that you could stimulate people to give, to give their organs uh, for, for a financial incentive. Um, and, you know, it does run uh, abs- you know, in, in, by, in contrast to a current law, obviously, but also things like the Declaration of Istanbul, uh, this is voluntary, and money is considered coercive uh, in the ethical framework of this. So it would call, call for an ethical uh, relook at, at, at how, how we approach this. One of the things that a lot of people have agreed on, however, is if you're a living donor, you do have lots of expenses and lost income, and that we absolutely should and can legally and ethically reimburse that today. And that can be thousands of dollars, and we don't do a good job of that. And to take that burden out of the way would be an interesting test of the role of money in stimulating people to donate. Well, and Congress uh, just introduced a bill on the Living Donor Protection Act, and I know it covers many of those things. And, you know, it's it's such a slow process because that would be a clear way to help, um, you know, stimulate transplantation and help, you know, the person who has uh, the need for the transplant and also the donor. But it just takes so long to get anything done sometimes. It's very frustrating, isn't it? Well, the, you know, and the, the reality is we don't need Congress to act on the uh, on reimbursement of lost wages and reimbursement of expenses. We need um, insurance companies to decide to do it. We need uh, transplant programs to decide to do it. Uh, you know, a, there is certainly a lot of cost to uh, an or, a, a living organ donor uh, donating an organ, but there are a lot of costs to deceased organ donors donating. And uh, when an OPO provides an organ from a deceased donor, to a transplant center, and it also sends along an invoice to cover those costs. So the transplant centers are used to having a cost, and the insurance companies are used to paying a cost for these organs, and that is usually higher than the cost of, the, of, living, of a living donor recovery. Um, so there, there is money in the system to do it. We just have to galvanize this around, and I think it is a worthwhile focus for a lot of us working with insurance companies and working with transplant programs. Just to kind of wrap up this conversation, um, can you share some of the, you know, technologies that are being developed to help increase transplantation, and what do you think the future holds? There are, uh, there's a lot of work going on uh, right now um, in improving existing methodologies of transplant, whether it's uh, ongoing efforts to try and improve uh, immunosuppression drugs, uh, some work that four centers around the country are doing. Uh, one legacy is working here with UCLA on a program to do simultaneously bone marrow transplant from a donor with the kidney transplant. So ideally, the recipient doesn't need immunosuppression or nearly as much. So, you know, efforts like that to make a, a transplant last longer. There's continued efforts to do even better and more detailed matching. Um, you know, originally it was blood type and then antigens, now sub-antigens, uh, to make, sh- to once again extend the life of a transplant. And I think you mentioned early, the early transplants were in the earlier days of the field and they did not do as well as they're doing today. And that's true 
across the board, but I know dozens of uh, patients with you know, now 30-year heart transplants, mm-hmm. and that's just getting better and better. So we're making progress within that realm, but obviously the thing that is probably most exciting is some of the work being done in the area of use of stem cells to uh, stimulate uh, the creation of new organs, uh, whether they're on hearts on scaffolds of, of donated human hearts that are gro- being grown with your own stem cells so, you, so it matches perfectly, or whether it's some of the um, alternative mechanical devices, wearable dialysis systems, um, the, the ability to culture hepatocytes for liver disease to uh, potentially avoid a transplant um, or give you more time to transplant. So there's a lot of work happening in both the biologic and the mechanical and the pharmaceutical area um, that at the end of the day, we in the organ procurement world like to think it might put us out of work in the next 20 years, and that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. I think, um, you know, there's plenty of different careers people could choose. And just to give a little shout-out, because Dr. Terasaki, who passed away, uh, did a lot of work on helping, you know, improve prove um, transplantation by the match, but he also was developing ways to keep the organ you know, uh, available for transplant port, which we don't always think of that. But, you know, there's like right now a kidney can only last about 36 hours. Is that correct? Um, out right, of the body? exactly right. Yeah. And you're right. There's a lot of work happening there. We, uh, we, The field has for many years used uh, kidney pumping devices, which keep the kidney a little more viable, reduce um, post-transplant necrosis, and, and, and potentially improve the long-term graft survival of the kidney that are used in certain cases. Um, and there's a lot of um, research. There's two, four trials going on here, starting up here in L.A. right now, on the use of liver pumping devices to try to improve the, uh, the, uh, the viability and the uh, and the functional effect of, of livers for transplant. So, yeah, there are there's a lot of science going on just to try and make the organs we have even better. Well, you know, that is so inspiring, and uh, this show is airing during April, which is Organ Donation Month, uh, Awareness Month, and I encourage everybody to go out and, you know, talk about organ donation, learn the facts, and uh, become aware because... I know that it certainly helps so many people's lives. And, Tom, I I really thank you for all of your knowledge and dedication to this community and, you know, increasing the number of organ donation in Southern California, which is just should be applauded. Well, thank you very much, Lori, and we appreciate everybody who's checked yes at the DMV or gone to DonateLifeCalifornia.org and said yes to organ donation, got that pink dot on their license. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.